Welcome to episode number 282. Today's episode is really an interesting one because up until just this past year, I had never even known about this breed of hogs and really how they differed than our regular modern pig and their story. So just a little bit of preface to this episode is with COVID this year, we were making certain that we were raising all of our own animals again. We had taken a year off from raising pork, mainly because we still had enough pork in the fridge. And with our pigs, that is not a livestock that I have set up for breeding purposes. So we go to a local breeder, we get our pigs from them as piglets, we get them in the springtime, and then we usually butcher right about October when the pigs are about six months of age. But because of all the other types of livestock that we raise, we just simply didn't need to raise them last year because we had enough meat to last. Well, enter COVID. (laughs) We were already planning on raising pigs again this year, but it just really confirmed for us that we wanted to make sure we were raising as much of our own food as possible, even more so than we had in years past. However, our regular breeder, we did not know it, had retired. And I don't like to purchase animals from auctions just because you simply don't really know the the breed. Uh, well, I should say, you know what breed you're getting. Let me rephrase that. You know what breed you're getting, but you don't necessarily know the full bloodline, um, what kind of environment they're coming from, if they have any disease. Like there's just lots of unknowns and beings were bringing them onto the property and we've got other forms of livestock here. I prefer not to use auction animals and to always buy from a local breeder whenever possible. Well, our breeder had retired and we couldn't find anybody who had any piglets that weren't spoken for except for American guinea hogs. And I'd heard the term American guinea hog, but I got to tell you, I really had no idea what it meant. I hopped on Google and started looking it up and I thought, okay, well, it's the only thing that we can get. So we're going to go ahead. And I contacted the breeder who lives locally to us and said, yep, we're going to take your piglets. And then we had more and more people contacting us, family members who were like, are you raising hogs this year? And so we kept adding to it until I wiped her out of pigs. So we brought home these American guinea hogs and I did some initial research and I came across a book by Kathy Payne and it was called Saving the Guinea Hogs, the Recovery of an American Homestead Breed. And the more I found out about these pigs and their history and the heritage, I was completely fascinated by them and was so excited that she agreed to come on to the podcast. So not only are you going to get to listen to her story and really find out a lot about this breed, which is really, really cool, but it's also finding out ways that you can support these heritage breeds as well so they're not lost. You really get to hear the story of how they came from almost being extinct to where they are today and how you can be a part of that, even if you're not raising them. But a lot of great information, including me not really grilling her, but almost because I have a lot of questions as I'm noticing a lot of things are different with these pigs than what I'm used to with raising the Hereford pigs that we're used to. So really, really fun, packed with a ton of information. I know that you're going to really enjoy today's episode. So as I said, Kathy is an award-winning author of Saving the Guinea Hogs, the Recovery of the American Homestead Breed. 
But what's really fascinating is Kathy did not start farming until she was 57 years old and she had no experience of raising anything, but she started raising nutrient-dense foods and heritage breeds of livestock, including meat rabbits, wool sheep, and pigs. When she could not find historic information on the guinea hogs, she set out to do her own research, and after eight years of farming, she left that life, wrote the book, and continues to this day to track down missing pieces of information and hopes to write down an update or a sequel for everybody who has read that first book and is wanting more and more, which I happen to be one of them. So without further ado, let's welcome Kathy to the podcast. Well, I am so excited for today's guest, and I can't wait to pick her brain. So Kathy, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you and to your Pioneering Today audience. Yeah, so I actually, Kathy and I first connected, this was is our first year raising American guinea hogs. And Kathy, I think you messaged me when you saw that. And then I went and grabbed your book because even though we have raised hogs for a number of years, we've never raised American guinea hogs or done this type of heritage type breed. And so I went and got your book. And I have to tell you, I really began to fall in love with the American guinea hog and all that they represent. And I found the story of the breed simply fascinating. So I really want to talk to you about the American guinea hogs. I actually have some specific questions I'm going to ask you in a little bit, but I would love for people, especially because the majority of my listeners are homesteaders. And so we're already very interested in those, you know, heritage garden seeds, heirloom garden seeds, and and the stories that come from our ancestors in the pioneer past and how we can incorporate that into our modern lives now. So when it we talk about heritage breeds and especially the American guinea hogs, why are they an important, or I should say, why did you choose to raise these heritage breeds and specifically what really piqued your interest in the American guinea hogs? Those are fantastic questions. I started homesteading in 2010 after I retired from a long career of school teaching and I did had no experience with any kind of livestock or farming or just about anything related to a homestead but I was ready to just jump in and do it and I was 57 years old so larger livestock didn't fit our needs and I do want to define heritage livestock because your listeners might not all be familiar with that. They've probably heard of heritage turkeys, and that's the first heritage animal I had heard of. And these are animals that were, their breed was developed prior to around 1950, and they're traditional breeds that were developed to be very successful in a particular locale under a particular circumstance. And it started over in Europe and in England. There were, you know, you'll hear the names like Gloucester pigs or Shropshire sheep. And they those would be the names of the towns or the counties or the provinces where those animals were bred and what they were best suited for. And over in England today, you can still have dairy products that are branded to the locale. So the heritage breeds have a long history 
and they are quite different than the manufactured breeds we have today that are developed to live on a factory farm. And they're actually the opposite. On a factory farm, you want an animal that will tolerate being squished together and bred fast and grow out fast and be slaughtered in a few weeks, whereas a heritage animal is expected to be part of the farm, integrated with the family. They have docile personalities, smaller size, multi-purpose uses, and so forth. So it's totally different, but they're part of our history. And if you think of how we preserve our national parks, we preserve our historic monuments or our historic buildings, and we have places in our cities that we mark as, as having history. These animals are also part of our history. And so they are worthy of preservation just from that fact. And like I said, I was a beginner. I wanted some animals that were easier. And I also really liked the heritage aspect. And I wanted to be part of saving something and raising livestock to sell as breeding stock was part of my model with everything I raised. So I had American blue rabbits, silver fox rabbits, Gulf Coast native sheep, and eventually the guinea hogs. Now, why were the guinea hogs my last choice? <laughs> I only had 11 acres, and of those 11 acres, eight of them were pastured. And I just couldn't imagine raising the sheep along with the hogs on the limited pasture I had. And hogs are also pretty big. You know, a, a typical hog is, is a big animal, even the heritage breeds. And they take up a lot of room. And if you have a boar that's after a mate, they can get pretty aggressive, and a sow with her piglets can get pretty aggressive. But then one of my rabbit customers told me that she just got some guinea hogs, and she was just raving about them. And I said, you know, I need to give that a look. So I started reading everything I could about guinea hogs, and I was somewhat disappointed because there wasn't a lot of information out there. This was in 2013. It was before Facebook groups had really got going, and I would join, what was the thing they had online? They were, oh, I can't even remember it now, but it was just people texting into these groups. Yahoo groups, was that it? Do you remember when Yahoo the groups were a thing? So I found a Yahoo group about guinea hogs okay. and tried to pick people's brains, and I read the little... I read a couple page paper from the Livestock Conservancy and what was on the AGHA website, but there just wasn't much out there. And I said, you know, if I'm going to learn about this breed, I guess I'll have to write the book first and then read it later. <laughs> so I started even before I bought my first pig, I started writing a book about the guinea hogs. <laughs> And that took me down a long, long road. <laughs> so does that answer your question? It does, which I find fascinating because 
homesteaders, I think overall, we are like problem solvers and we don't let a whole lot stand in our way. And so I love that you're like, okay, I want to learn about this breed and I'm not really finding resources. So I'm just going to create my own, like I'm going to create the resource. And I, I actually, I really love that, um, that mindset. I tend to be that way in a lot of ways too. And I think it, it's really awesome. Plus from your book, and I know we won't be able to share everything from the book, but you really got to meet some very fascinating individuals and you got to capture some really cool stories about not only the American guinea hog, but also the families and the people that raised these hogs. And I, I am a story person. I am a huge reader. I love stories. I especially love stories that have like historical bent or talk about times past. So I found that aspect actually as interesting as the actual information about the breed itself mm-hmm. and the way that you kind of intertwine that all together in the book. So with the American guinea hogs, and it's been a little bit since I read the book, so mm-hmm. forgive me if I get any of this a little bit wrong. You can absolutely correct me. But um, they really were first more in the southern part of the United States. Am I correct? And that was kind of where the breed originated? Yes. In the U.S.? We're, I'm still researching probably for part two of this history. And that's what we're finding. We're finding a lot in Georgia, Texas, Alabama. And that's where I found the people who were in my book were in the southern states. Most of them that told their stories, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so with the American guinea hog, for those who have, maybe you've heard American guinea hog, but you might, you might even be like, I don't really know what American, how is American guinea hog? I understand it's a heritage breed, but how is it really different um, than what we kind of think of typically when, you know, we're raising the, the larger breeds? Like I said, we have raised Hereford pigs predominantly in the past, mm-hmm. uh, which are a larger pig than the American guinea hog. Uh, but kind of what are some of the characteristics that set the American guinea hog apart from some of those other larger, more common breeds? Well, they are smaller than other hogs. Here in the South, people raise these big hogs. I'm not sure what all they are, but big white hogs, and they can get up to 900 pounds in the sow, and and some of the big boars can get up to 1,400 pounds. So those are some big pigs. Yeah. Guinea hogs are usually... At maturity, they can be anywhere from 250 to 450 pounds, which is quite a bit smaller. And like I said, they are a homestead pig. These were um, part of the small family farms, and they were kept around the house. They were sometimes called a yard pig. And so they're very docile. They've been selected for docility. You can get into an enclosure with many, if not most, of the sows of this breed and be right there when they're barrowing, which is having their piglets. Uh, They're not aggressive to the humans. Um, The boars, you always have to be mindful of any of the males of any species of livestock, but they're very gentle and friendly, and as long as you don't have a sow in heat nearby. <laughs> you have to be respectful of those large tusks, but um, you, you usually don't have a problem with them attacking a person, although they might, you know, be protective of the girls. So they're easy keepers. 
They also forage well. They can harvest their own food. They can clean up the corn crop. They can root out the tomatoes at the end of the season. They can eat your sweet potato vines. So they can forage much of their own food. They do not take a lot of food to fatten. They are lard pig. And actually, if you feed too much corn or grains to a guinea hog, they will get fat. So instead of thinking like free feeding and hundreds of pounds of feed, you only need something like a coffee can to feed them. And so you have very few inputs. You also have very few veterinarian inputs and you have a lot of outputs. Every six months, you might have a litter of eight to 10 piglets. So they were called the mortgage lifters. And that meant that it's something that the homesteaders could count on to provide for the family and allow them to be able to pay their mortgage, either by selling piglets or saving money on meat and so forth. Yeah, I, I love it. I've noticed a big difference with especially the aggressiveness, especially as the hogs have matured in comparison to the other breeds that we've raised. And right now we're, we have five American guinea hogs that we're raising right now, and they are about six months old right now. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that as they've reached that maturity, like usually by this time is actually when we're normally butchering when we get our hogs. We only usually raise them out throughout the summer. We get them in early spring, raise them throughout the summer, and then butcher in the fall when we're doing some of the larger breeds. Mm-hmm. These guys aren't quite big enough to butcher yet. So we're, this is the first time we've actually been carrying any hogs over on our homestead because we don't breed. We just buy the piglets. We don't have a breeding setup um, through the winter months. But I've really noticed when we go out to feed, like I can actually send the kids out to feed now that they're at this larger size. Whereas Mm -hmm. prior, like you almost would need to take like a pole with you to push them off you when it was the bigger hogs, especially if they were thinking they were especially hungry with those other breeds. But the the guinea hogs, I mean, they'll get up close to me and whatnot and kind of go around my feet. So I got to be careful that I don't trip over one of them when I'm mm-hmm. getting the feet out. But they're not nearly as aggressive um, compared to the other breeds. And so that's been really nice because we actually took a vacation and I asked my folks if they could, we were gone for a weekend and I asked them if they could come down and, and feed the pigs. And my mom was like, I don't know if I want to feed the pigs because they had done it the year before with the other breed. And I'm like, these guys are really different. And so it was really fun because when we got back, she was like, oh yeah, those guys, they were like much easier to feed. I didn't feel intimidated or a little bit, you know, not really scared was her wording, but nervous going in. And, and I really noticed that too. So I actually really appreciate that about them. And they have not rooted up. They have rooted up some because we've had them in a, a large portion of the pasture and they've been in that specific portion for a number of months. As they got bigger, we would just extend the fence out and out and out so that they mm-hmm. had more. Um, but now that our grass is at the end of the growing season, we've had our killing frost. We're not getting a, a ton of pasture. They have rooted it up some, but not nearly as destructively rooting, which if you want it for land clearing, pigs actually are quite fantastic at that. We've had brushy areas. We've put them in purposely, but these mm-hmm. guys are, aren't so destructive uh, to the pasture, which mm-hmm. has been really nice. But now you said their typical weight when they're full, full grown um, is usually around that 250 pound mark. At what age do they usually hit that pound mark? They actually will are a slow growing breed and they don't reach full size really till age four or five and an older hog 
they'll live for quite a while. So they'll probably keep gaining a little as they age, like humans do as well. But you think of four to five as being the large size of a fairly young pig. Okay. So because we're coming at them from the world of, like I said prior, where we're, you're raising them out and you can you know, butcher them and get a decent amount of meat off of a, of a pig at about between six and nine months typically. So with these guys, when people are raising them for meat, when do you typically see people butchering them? Because raising them out to a full four to five years, honestly, for butchering seems, I don't know that we would keep up with that. No, it's, that's not for butchering weight. Okay. The, but you know, for butchering weight, usually 250 is what's uh, typical. Wouldn't that be for your heifers at about six months, 250 pounds? What yeah. You're shooting for? Yeah. So you just have to think differently. So I would recommend, are you, do you butcher at home or do you take them to a processor? Uh, we actually have, we have butchered at home in the past, but when we have this many, we actually have our local butcher comes out to mm-hmm. the pasture, um, does the killing there and, you know, and the gutting and then takes them into the local butcher shop and, and finishes off everything they're wrapping and cutting, awesome. etc. Yeah. You might want to consider with the holidays coming up, having either a Thanksgiving, Christmas or New Year's pig, because you can take even a three month old piglet and process them as a suckling pig. And so you might think of a a turkey-sized pig or a barbecue-sized pig. And so you can process them then any really anywhere between three months and 12 months is a, a nice time to process a guinea hog. I never had one older than 13 months unless I had a sow that wasn't performing well. And then I might process one at two or three years. But you can process them at, at any size you want to. If you have a little stinker of a three-month-old that just decides it wants to breach the fence and everybody else stays in the fence, uh, or it has maybe some kind of a defect that you're concerned about that's more cosmetic than anything, you can process that one early. Right. But if you want something that's going to be 250 pounds, you'll have to wait probably closer to 15 to 24 months, maybe 15 to 18. A lot of it depends on the bloodlines and what you're feeding them and so forth. Okay. Which I wanted to talk to you about the the feeding because we typically, um, we finish off in the fall. As I said, normally we butcher in the fall. And so we've always finished off our pigs. We ha- are lucky enough to have a lot of apples here in Washington State. We have, there's a ton of apple orchards. We have mm. a lot of apple trees on our property and, and family and friends. And so we will get a, a bunch of apples up and then we will cook that down into like a big applesauce, essentially. And then mm-hmm. we will put their feed that we're getting, which I buy an organic um, hog mix mm-hmm. from our local granary, and we'll mix that together and then feed them that so that they're getting all those fresh apples and finishing off on the apples. And we feel like it gives, one, it stretches the feed, um, and we feel like it gives the meat a better flavor. Mm-hmm. And so we've been doing that with these guys. And what's been really interesting to see is the Hereford pigs in the past, they like a real runny slop, like they'll just 
kind of slurp it up like you would a smoothie almost. <laughs> but the guinea hogs, they actually don't. They prefer it where it's chunkier and they can chew it and like they're kind of chewing their cud in a way. So it's been really interesting to see that, that they will just pass by if it's too runny in the slop. Like they'll come back to it once they get, you know, kind of hungry, but they mm -hmm. really prefer to chew and have it that chunkier mixture, which has been really just very interesting just to kind of document the differences that we're seeing between the breeds. But as we're going into winter and we were I'm pretty sure it's the end of January is where we have our butcher date, which will put them right at about nine, 10 months old. Mm -hmm. Um, do you finish off the American guinea hogs as far as their meat flavor goes? Because I've never actually had American guinea hog as far as I know, as far as eating pork, because it's not something mm. you normally see in the stores. Do you have any recommendations, I guess, is what I'm getting after and expectations to expect from the meat if it tastes any different than the regular breeds were kind of used to? Well, I had a different, some different goals in mind because I was breeding more for the livestock. The meat was the excellent byproduct of that. And so I didn't do a lot of research on finishing, but the Iberico hogs in Spain are famous for being finished on acorns. And apple finishing is also excellent if you have storage apples or if you have the kids want to gather some acorns to put in storage. If you have a root cellar or something over the winter, then you could save some of that to finish them in January. But I'm sure you could probably find any anything that you would do for the Herefords. You could also do the last month or so for the guinea hogs as far as flavor goes. But you are in for a treat. The guinea hog meat flavor is amazing, even if you don't do anything different. and the texture of the fat is like butter. It's just smooth and creamy and delicious. And you can get some really great lard. And if your butcher's good, he'll, he can save out the leaf lard separately, which is great for your biscuits and your pies and other baking. Are you familiar with the leaf lard? Oh, I am. Yes, we always render down our lard. And I've got my beautiful leaf lard that, yes, is in specific jars which is only for baking and then I've got the the lesser that I'll use for like frying meat and different you know and, and that type of thing or more savory type things not not the the baking um, and then I also will use it to make soap so I'm really excited about that aspect that they are a lard pig and we should get a decent amount even though they, they're going to be smaller right it, their finishing size is going to be smaller when we butcher them it sounds like I'm going to get an excellent lard harvest <laughs> with you them. will and for your listeners that are not familiar with that term this is the lard that is on the back of the pig behind the kidneys and it doesn't have any muscle back there and so it's you don't get any of the cracklings that you would usually get when you're rendering lard it just all melts down to this pure white soft creamy product and it's it's wonderful Yes, I'm quite I'm quite excited about that aspect, actually. But I was curious now with the, their size, because they have like these little they're so they're so funny. We actually enjoy get a kick out of watching them, but they've got these little tiny short legs on mm -hmm. them compared to the others. So but they've still got, you know, the, the good body size, really. It's just they're a lot shorter in stature. And of course, they're not as large, but their body size is good. So how is the bacon production on them? <laughs> 
Well, there are people that will tell you that they don't make bacon, but they really do. You can get a lot of bacon off these, these hogs. Some lines are longer than others, but you'll get quite a bit and you'll enjoy it. It'll be really good for your breakfast. And you get a lot from the jowls. You notice their head is probably not that much smaller than what you might have had on your Herefords. And yeah. so there's a lot of great meat in the jowl. Oh. And you can get almost as much bacon from the jowls. So you want to tell your butcher to um, use the head to okay. cut jowls. And you'll get that nice meat there too oh perfect you can almost double your bacon production hey i love that because the bacon is the one thing we never have enough of my son is 15 and a half and and bacon is i think his favorite food on earth and so Mm -hmm. so i really i did not know that actually that that they could take the jowl meat uh, and make bacon out of it so i'm super excited to make sure that our butcher does that thank you for that tip certainly now we have been because i know that they are a pasture pig, which has been actually fascinating. As I said, they were with the apples noticing their chewing, but they really have ate the grass. We, I would see them eat the grass, whereas a lot of the other breeds that we've had in the past seemed like they more rooted it up than really ate it. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that the guinea hogs definitely would kind of graze on it first. And then after they'd kind of gotten all the grazing out of that specific area that they wanted to, then they would kind of begin to root it up more. But as we move into these winter months here where our grass just really doesn't grow very much and, and we're feeding hay to the cattle um, and, and then supplementing um, like with the chickens, I have them on pasture. But of course, then I have to start feeding them more chicken feed, et cetera, because there's not pasture. Now, because the guinea hogs tend to be more of a grazer, have do you find that will they eat hay more like a cow or not? They will eat hay. Do you have sources of alfalfa where you live? We do. A lot of people will feed alfalfa to their pigs in the winter in the northern states like Iowa, Illinois, New York. They will feed alfalfa or higher grade hay. And that will give them some of that protein that they need as well. Yeah. Um, So you don't have to feed them just grain. Now, I live in the south in Georgia, and we had nice pasture pretty much 12 months out of the year. I mean, there was during dry periods, it would be brown and and it wasn't as lush in the wintertime, but ours could graze pretty much year round, at least a little bit. And they never, they always had access to hay, but they they didn't like it very much. But <laughs> other pe- people in the north, they will feed a lot of hay to their pigs. Okay. So oh, and another trick to get them started is to sprinkle their hay with the feed and then they will root through and they will find every little piece of grain that you've hidden in that hay. And in the process, they'll take a bite or two of the hay and decide it's not too bad. This isn't too bad. And I find that very fascinating that they will, and I love that because, uh, you know, we know grass-fed animals, their fat produces omega-3s versus your grain-fed, you're getting the omega-6s. And so there's a mm-hmm. lot of health benefits for grass-fed animals and their meat and fats when we're consuming it. So I really love that this breed will also eat hay because that's not something that we have seen with the other breeds. They tend to be a more very much grain-dominant type mm-hmm. eater. Um, and with your feeding schedule, because I know a lot of times when my, I know I keep going back to, to the, the experience that I have, but typically like 
you kind of briefly, we touched on this, I think I heard you say it earlier, is a lot of conventional feeding advice would be that you just leave a lot of feed out for them and let them free feed, let them eat as much as they want to. But with the American guinea hogs, you're saying they can get too fat, which we've been actually keeping an eye on ours. We've got one out of the five who's getting a little bit more round than we would like. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of begin keeping an eye on him and, and adjusting the feed. But what would be a typical ideal feeding schedule for American guinea hogs when they're not just solely foraging, when you're supplementing? And is there kind of a typical, and I realize as the animal grows that it's going to need more food and, and increasing, but is there kind of a typical feeding schedule and or like amount per animal per day that's recommended with this breed? Well, there's nothing recommended per se because in farming, it's everything is all, it all depends and it depends on your pasture and the nutrition on your pasture and what you have available locally. But I can share my own experience. And what I was not doing is, well, feeding up feeder pigs like you're doing, but I did, before I got my guinea hogs, I did grow out for hogs that were more conventional. And I was feeding them, I think, two five-gallon buckets for four pigs twice a day. Now, for the same amount of guinea hogs, I would have fed, um, instead of five gallons, I would have fed two quarts per pig. So two times four is eight. So I'd really just be feeding two gallons instead of 10 gallons for the same amount of pigs. But you're trying to produce meat, not breeding stock. So for the meat hogs, I would give them a little bit more than I would give my breeding hogs. If, If a breeding hog is too fat, then they won't breed and procreate. But if a meat hog is too fat, you'll just get more lard than fat, than meat. So uh, a lot of it depends on what you want the pig to produce and how fat do you want it. (laughs) So, but but yeah, you want to measure it out and and give them a certain amount. Twice a day should be fine for non-breeding animals. Uh, I did feed my nursing sows three times a day because they needed it to provide the energy for the piglets. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you are more Southern, so you probably don't get our cold temps. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we'll get some cold. And so we have, um, they have a a four walled and roofed enclosed shelter, which we've put a ton of straw in there. And they, they're so funny. They love to to go in there actually. And just, it's like they're lounging. (laughs) They crack me up. (laughs) And so we, we've got that provided for them and they are, uh, they're black and they, they seem to have a decent amount of fur. Do you know, like if there's, you know, certain temps, do they require any type of heat lamp? They seem to be pretty hardy. I mean, they've survived a long time. They are a heritage breed. But do you know if there's any recommendations as far as their heat or cold tolerance, I guess, would be the better way to word that? They should not need a heat lamp, but they will definitely love to stay in on those cold mornings when it's snowing and and cold. So as long as you put in maybe a couple of feet of straw in their enclosure that they can get under it, they'll use it like a blanket. And it'll be so funny because you'll go in there and it's like, where are the pigs? What happened to the pigs? Did they get out overnight? And then they all just pop up their little heads and say, breakfast? Is it time for breakfast? (laughs) 
Oh, perfect. Then we've got, yeah, we've got about that much in there. So I'll just make sure to grab an extra, yes. an extra bale of straw on hand in case I need to toss it in there. Um, and I also wanted to, because one of the things I found astounding about it is the way that this breed has been brought back almost from extinction. Could you, will you share those numbers? Because I'm sure if I try to quote them, I'm, I'm going to mis, misquote them. Um, in a fairly short period of time, it feels like the numbers are really coming back on these hogs. A very short period of time. So there were several factors that caused the near demise of the guinea hogs and many, many other breeds as well. In the 70s, uh, when we had um, some governmental regulations about shutting down small farms and growing big and going to factory farms, so you had the demise of the small farms. And then with the guinea hog, you had a fad. It was the pet pig fad. And so people were breeding these mini pigs, and they were using the guinea hogs to, to use for the mini pigs. And then you had people just get more interested in 4-H and the guinea hogs were not the kind of pig that you would show for 4-H or FFA. And so people stopped raising them. They they weren't as big, like you said, they didn't get to that 250 pound mark. So by 1990, they were almost gone. And in 2005, some people got together and worked under direction of the Livestock Conservancy in order to preserve the breed and start an association and keep registrations. And at that time, they could only find maybe 30 to 50 that were alive and viable viable for breeding. And they started the breed association with 11 to 14 hogs. It was really small. And of those, not all of those ever did breed and procreate. And they thought they were from three or four family groups. And research that I did while I was writing the book, I discovered that three of the family groups were really from one family group. And then, this is really interesting. It might be getting off of what you want to know about. But... Readers who read read my book in the last chapter, I kind of put this call out there. I don't do it. I do it subtly. I don't ask anybody to do it anything for me. But I say, I really wish I would have talked to this person or if I could have tracked down these breeders X, Y, Z. And one of my readers contacted me and said, oh, I tracked down that farmer and he told me what the address and I said yeah you found him but he had not returned my phone calls he had not returned my emails he had not returned my snail mails so he just he lived nearby and he just kind of drove up his driveway one day and had a conversation (laughs) with him and reported back to me and he also got the information from where that person had purchased his hogs and it turned out there were four sources that all trace back to one. The people who started the association didn't even know that one source. It was one that I had un- uncovered in my research. That's why tracking things down and probably will write a sequel as soon as I can get it all sorted out. And another thing that I didn't have is information prior to about 19. 
1900 to 1950, the tradition, the, the, the oral history is that they were evident before the Civil War, but I didn't have any documents to that effect. But since I started my research, Google Docs has started scanning all these newspapers and magazines and advertisements and books. And so people are now, again, three or four of my readers are supplying me with all these links to all these docs that they're finding. That's that so far we've traced it back as far back as 1811. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's real exciting. And it's kind of like um, I'm crowdsourcing my research from my next book. But it wasn't even something I asked for. It's just people are just excited about the genealogy. Yeah, which I think is fabulous. I I tend to to geek out about this type of stuff too. I'm fascinated by history and 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 everything like that. So it started then there was really only about 5 5 that kind of restarted in the registry of this breed, which is just astounding to think that that's how few were actually left in the in the US. So mm-hmm. approximately now how many American guinea hogs are there? Those kind of questions are really hard to get to because there are the guinea hogs like you've got that are feeders that are not registered, that'll be slaughtered. And then there are people who are breeding unregistered pigs. And there are probably thousands out there. But if you were trying to get ones that had pedigrees that you could track and keep keep up with and figure out what family groups they were from so you weren't breeding too closely, um, I think there are about 400 people that are breeding right now. So say each of those people is raising three pigs that might be 1,200 registered. So, and you've got some that'll have more, some that aren't breeding anymore. So that's probably a good safe bet that there would be that many registered pigs, but there are probably 20 unregistered for every registered one out there. Yeah. But, you know, in, in like a 15-year span, approximately, that's, um, that's actually pretty cool to see that, that the numbers are growing and, and interest, you know, is growing as more and more people find out about them. Like myself, I really, I'd heard the term, but I didn't really know what it meant, I have to say, for until we really started looking into them just this past year. And it was actually our regular breeder that we normally get our piglets from retired and we didn't know it. And so he sold all of his breeding stock, was just no longer in it. And, and we didn't know. And so when I contacted him to get our pigs this year, he's like, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm like, oh man. And of course, COVID hit. And so there was a lot more people interested in raising their own meat. And the only piglets that I could find in our area were American guinea hogs. So that's how we ended up getting the American guinea hogs. And then I'm like, well, I probably better do a little because our breeder was telling me, you know, that they were different and was going through stuff. And I'm like, I probably better do a little bit of research on this mm-hmm. breed before we jump in and, and say yes. But it was also the only thing that I could find this year if we wanted to raise pork and we did want to raise pork again this year. So anyhow, that's how I kind of stumbled on this rabbit hole, if you say, but it's been really cool and really interesting. And I'm really excited to get to try the meat. You know, we're, we're carrying them over longer. So we have bought more food, but they do eat less. So it's been very interesting when we get to the actual butcher date, I'll, you know, do all the math and everything out to see, you know, per pound uh, cost-wise to us, if there's been mm-hmm. any difference. But 
it's been really fun learning and I'm excited to try the meat. And it's kind of fun too, to think that you're helping preserve uh, something that was almost lost. So that kind of gives a, a good feeling. But even if people aren't raising livestock and when it comes to heritage breeds and keeping these heritage breeds alive, is there anything that even if someone's like, well, I'm not in the position to really start raising these that they can do to help with the cause of keeping these heritage breeds? Absolutely. First of all, you can try to seek out a farmer that is has a heritage farm and is raising the heritage breeds and purchase the meat or raise out a feeder like you're doing. You can also join the Livestock Conservancy and you can just buy any products that are from heritage animals. If you want to learn how to spin or knit, then you want to get your wool from heritage sheep. Um, I don't know if your readers have, her listeners have heard about Shape Them to Save Them. I I have heard that term, but I don't really have much knowledge beyond I've heard the term. (laughs) So Shave Them to Save Them is a trademarked program by the Livestock Conservancy, and you can find them at thelivestockconservancy.org. And they have this really cool passport program. So I think the goal is to try to spin or knit or make a product from five different heritage breeds of sheep over, I don't know, maybe it's a three-year period and you get a little passport and you stamp it and you show pictures on Facebook of your product when it's finished. And they expected it to take about three years for people to go through. There were people who finished it in three months and then wanted more. And so this has been wildly popular and it gets people to understand the difference, you know, like just like you'll see the difference in your guinea hog pork compared to your Hereford pork. The quality is different. And when you're shearing sheep and making wool and making different kinds of products. There'll be some wool that's better for rugs and some wool that's great for socks and so forth. And so it's really educational. And when you get back to thinking about, you know, what Laura Ingle would have been doing or what the pioneers would have been doing on the Oregon Trail, it, it kind of gets you back to those roots and you feel that connection with women that lived hundreds of years ago, maybe your great, great, great grandparents. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I really loved the book. So I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the stories in part two. But um, for those who would like to definitely get more information and find out more about the breed and the history and the stories and connect with you, uh, what is the best way for them to go about doing that? My website is www.giddyhogbooks.com. Guinea is spelled G-U-I-N-E-A. I'm also at Guinea Hog Books on Instagram. And I am at Saving the Guinea Hogs on Facebook. And I have a special offer for your listeners. Yay, we love those types of things. Okay, so I have my book in both ebook and soft cover and hard cover. And the hard cover I've got on sale between now and December 10th for everybody. But for your listeners, if you put in coupon code PT25, that's for pioneering today, and you'll get 25% off 
a soft cover copy. So instead of $24.99, you'll save $6.25. It'll be $18.65. And that will include free media mail shipping between now, when you're listening to this, until December the 5th of 2020. I know this will be out there in the universe five years from now, so I want to make that clear when it ends. And so please um, check out the book on my website. It's also available anytime on Amazon, but if you want an autographed copy, and it can also be personalized, then you want to get it before December 10th while it's on sale. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And guys, we'll have that coupon code and links to everything in the blog post that accompanies this episode, which you'll be able to snag at melissaknorris.com forward slash 282, because this is episode number 282. So you can go there and get all of the links, including that wonderful discount. So thank you so much for offering that, Kathy. Really appreciate that. And thank you, one, for all of the work that you have done the research and the amount of work that you compiled into your book is really quite astounding, but bringing awareness back for this hog has been really great. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been quite a pleasure. Oh my goodness, you guys. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I will definitely, after we butcher in January, so this coming January is our butcher date and the pigs will be about nine months old. I will let you know my final thoughts on them and our full experience when we go all the way from butcher and getting the meat back and cooking that and seeing I'll lay out the pros and cons compared to the other breeds if we decide to do them again if we're going to go back and really just lay it all out for you in an upcoming episode so if you have any more questions that weren't answered today Make sure that you leave them in a review of this podcast episode. So whatever app you're listening to this on, if it's Apple Podcast, I don't think I usually actually use Stitcher. I don't have a iPhone and I don't think it allows you to leave reviews there. But if you're listening to it and any of those spots that allow reviews, leave them there with your questions so it can be something that I can come back around and answer in that follow follow up episode, which will be, of course, in 2021 when we actually butcher. But I'll be really excited to kind of give you the rundown on everything and how it went for us and what we think of the breed and the process. I can't wait to be back here with you next week. But for now, blessings in mason jars. Mm-hmm.